Well, I think we'll get started. Good to see you all. Um, I've given you a handout. I'll draw your attention to that. Um, it's a front and back thing. The first, there's not really, either way is fine. But the one that has at the top um, astounding facts about the Exodus, this simply deals with the projected numbers of human beings. The other side, fascinating facts about the Exodus, also add livestock. Following? So you're going to see numbers are differently, but this is just dealing with the number of human beings. This deals with human beings plus the livestock. Now, it's uh, I'm not going to read all this to you. You can re- read it. It's, um, it's an interesting, do you know what I mean by extrapolation? In other words, given certain facts that you know, how can you then extrapolate out and determine the other numbers involved. Uh, We know for certain, uh, both from Exodus 7 and from Numbers chapter 1, when they took a census, that there were 600,000 men that left Egypt. So if you look again on the astounding facts about Exodus uh, sheep, you're just, you're making some assumptions. Again, whether or not they're completely accurate is, is impossible to know. But if you have 600,000 men, it would be reasonable to conclude 600,000 women. That may or may not be accurate. Not, maybe not every man was married or whatever. And then from that number of children. Now that 2.4 million for children is, is a little high in some of the other estimates I've seen. So generally what most people assume is somewhere between 2.5 million to 3.5 million is the total number of Israelites that left Egypt. And then they, again, just extrapolate out from how long would the column be and how much food would it require. And then on the other sheet, if you add livestock, which the Bible says livestock uh, was taken by them as they left Egypt, again, try to extrapolate out what would that mean in the total length of the column of, uh, of individuals leaving plus the livestock and so on. And, you know, again, these numbers would be very fluid. This isn't the Bible speaking. The only thing that's speaking of the Bi- from the Bible is the 600,000 men figure. That's in a couple of different places in the, in the account of the uh, Exodus and in the book of Numbers. That's why Numbers is called Numbers, because they took a census and, uh, and counted a lot, including how they're going to divvy up tribe, tribal allotments and so on. So anyway... I thought it'd be fun. I had that in my file. I haven't used it for a while. I thought it'd be fun for you to have that and just to look at it. Because all this would do, as you just think about it, is just emphasize the miraculous way in which God provided. Because this morning we're going to read about the ways in which God provided the food, uh, the water, and so on to sustain the life of this many people. It is a miracle. No matter how you, uh, no matter how you look at it, or how you cut it. So anyway, it's just a kind of a fun thing to look at. Uh, if you don't particularly want it, use it light your fire tonight at home because you probably still have your fire going. It's a little cold, or uh, recycle it or something. Impact here. We didn't say that the food would take 30 box cars for food per day and 300 tank cars of water every day. That is huge. It is. It is. And as we'll be reading here in in just a minute, how the Lord provided for the the food to sustain life in the desert. Because as they're moving down along the west side of the Red Sea, that is pure desert. That's desert. (laughs) There are a few wadis. Do you know what a wadi is? There are a few wadis, which is like an oasis of water in the desert. And there are a few along that route that we know about, uh, that they would have been able to take advantage of. But we'll read about some of the ways in which God miraculously provided water, too. It's interesting that those numbers, if you flip the page over, the numbers are about three times as much, but the number of animals was about equipment. It means that on average, each animal consumed twice as much as the humans. Yeah, I mean, that's what I mean. The one deals adds in animals, which makes it even more fantastic and... And, and truly miraculous how God did this. You know, that's really... You know, we can go out, <clears throat> a couple of guys and a dog, and, and hunt for quail. And, you know, we come back sometimes empty-handed. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this, uh, this is really a, a miracle. Yeah, well, I mean, that's... 
and that is that's the point of all this is that regardless of what the actual precise numbers might have been which we we can deduce we can extrapolate and get uh, some approximate numbers but even if it's half that even if it's half that number you still have a phenomenal miraculous supernatural uh, provision of God for his people and that's why continually throughout the rest of the Old Testament and there it's almost in every book of the Old Testament past Exodus God keeps referring I am the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob I am the God who brought you out of Egypt and then he elaborates on what he did and it's just I mean that's that's a reference point and that is why for uh, the Jewish person even today even if they're a reformed Jew the remembrance of the Exodus and the Passover and all of those things that w- would be instituted to celebrate that—it's—it's um, it's just the defining moment of their of their history. Uh, that next only to what is happening now, and this again is how they talk as they're uh, re- returning to their land, as they're returning to Israel, which is equally, as far as they are concerned, miraculous. So I thought it'd be fun for you to take this and. And please, if you ever, if you want to use it, you can. But always remember, the only thing biblical about this sheet is the 600,000 figure for the men. That we know. It's recorded several times in the Old Testament. All we're doing here is just extrapolating out, given that number, what could potentially be the number of women, potentially the number of children, plus the livestock and so on. Again, no matter what. Even 600,000 itself is a miracle to provide for that. But we know women and children join. So, as Forrest Gump said 21 and a half years ago, that's all I have to say about that. Now, you might want to have your map that I gave you last week, the route of the Exodus, uh, fairly close by, because we're going to chart some of the geography associated with their movement and, um, and then just go forward. So, okay, we ready? Please. Map here in the northern part of the Red Sea or the, you know, Gulf of Suez. Was it? Could they have gone around? I mean, I don't. Yes. Yes, sure, sure they could have. But but God directed them for the very, and He says that, but for the very express purpose of this fantastic demonstration of His power, which is what this is. I mean, it it really is. And again, it it is for both Egypt's. Um, Egypt's benefit as God in, in, effect, in effect judges the entire army, etc., as well as for the, the children of Israel. And it will be the children of Israel, as I said a moment ago, they, this always is the marker for them. They always remember the liberation of God, uh, of, uh, of the Lord from Egypt. And it's, it was the most important event in their history in terms of what God did for them. All right, with all of that said, um, in verse 19 of chapter 15 is where I want to pick up. Last week, um, we looked, uh, well, and studied and made comments about what is often called the Song of Moses, which is verse um, 1 all the way through verse 18. And it's, it's interesting, again, I want to emphasize that, how it ends, the song, because this is, this is poetry. This is a song that they sung, uh, and they would sing it again. It would be a major part of the worship. One of the psalms in, um, in the Psalter is a, an exact, with a few word changes, an exact replica, replica of this. Uh, I believe it's Psalm 18. So, and then there'll be, there'll be parts of it that are in the other Psalms, and then it tells us in the book of Revelation that in, um, in, the, in the heavenly court of God, they will sing this song again, and parts of it are repeated. Because it celebrates what we now know, having studied it, the amazing power and deliverance of God. For his people. And we emphasize, like, for example, in verse 2, words like strength, defense, he has become my salvation. Verse 3, he's our warrior. Verse 6, majestic in power. 7, greatness of his majesty, etc., etc. This is celebrating the, 
the massive demonstration of supernatural power to liberate the Israelis from Egyptian bondage. And then it ends, I, I just love that, it ends, the Lord reigns forever and ever. And remember, they're, they're headed, as I'm saying, they're headed now to Mount Sinai, but they're celebrating an eternal truth. And it's affirming his sovereignty, that is, God's sovereignty. And again, look at the word there, it's Lord, it's Yahweh. So it's just, it's affirming what you and I need to affirm again and again and again. In my morning Bible study, we're in, um, we're studying the book of Genesis in the morning one, but we're in Joseph. We're going through the Joseph narrative now. And it's, uh, uh, it's really fun to be able to stress again what is true for your life and my life. And I hope you understand this sentence. Circumstances do not always confirm God's sovereignty. Faith is what confirms God's sovereignty. And what I mean by that is just when you and I are living through something very difficult and very harsh, I'm using that word intentionally, it may be hard for you to say by those circumstances, "Ah, I trust in God's sovereignty. But faith, it rises above those circumstances and says, the Lord reigns forever and ever. My favorite Old Testament minor prophet is Habakkuk, because Habakkuk, in the first two chapters, is trying to tell the Lord how to run his universe. And the Lord responds to each one of them. He has a cluster of questions, and the Lord responds to each one of them. And in chapter 3, it's a very short uh, minor prophet, but chapter 3, Habakkuk just breaks out in remarkable praise. And the key in the book of Habakkuk is chapter 2, verse 4. The just walk by faith. I'm trying to, that's a, this was a teachable, preachable moment, so. This, but, whole, this, this whole thing is, but as I was reading, I, I keep seeing how the, how the Jews, Israelites, they, they believe very strongly in the Lord and yeah. then they forget. They, get they forget. Years, you know, and, yeah. and I think we do too. Oh, absolutely. You know? and, uh, and, and that's why it took 40 years probably yeah. for he had to continue demonstrating to them his omnipotence. Yes. And Who he is, he what he's done, and what he's going to do for them. That's right. That's right. Yep, that's right. And that's why it's so applicationally wonderful for us because I can identify very, very much. You see God do fantastic things, and in four weeks you forget what he did because you're in the midst of another challenge. Okay, this one's too big for you, Lord. I'll handle it, you know, and that's, that ain't going to work very well, as you know. The end of the chapter is Miriam's song. Who's Miriam? Uh, Aaron Moses' sister. This is her sister. We don't hear a lot about her, but we hear some about her. When Pharaoh's horses, I'm in verse 19, when Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. The Israelites walked through the sea in the dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister. Please note that she is identified as a prophet. She is the first woman in the Bible to be called a prophet. There will be many, many, many more women that will be identified as a prophet. She's the first one. If we do the math correctly, Miriam is in her early 90s at this point. She took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with her timbrels. Uh, you, know, a t- you know what a timbrel is? It's kind of a yeah, tambourine type thing. Miriam sang to them, and it's very short, very short. Sing to Yahweh, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. Micah chapter 6, Micah is another minor prophet. Micah chapter 6 verse 4 talks about Miriam and her leadership role at this point in the history of Israel. So Miriam is no inconsequential person. She's a very important person. Uh, That she is a woman affirms that God is interested in stressing the value, worth, and importance of women. 
Because even in this ancient society, 1446 B.C. is the year we are in right here in the text, um, that's a very patriarchal society. It's a very patriarchal way of looking at things. But you just constantly, God stresses the value and importance of women. And of course, that will be a key theme throughout the scriptures. So that's just, I added a few little asides there, but that's all. But it's an important, it's an important song, an important uh, lyrics, is, and it was put to music, obviously, because they sing it, that affirms what just they just saw. Yahweh is to be highly exalted. Why? Because he destroyed our enemies who were out to kill us. All right, now... What I want to do, in a way, it's almost like a, a, there's a false chapter break because it moves now into another major topic. But starting with verse 22, and it will go all the way through uh, the end of verse 17, uh, sorry, the end of uh, chapter 17, I want you to begin to observe there are going to be five ways in which God supernaturally provides here. Five ways. It's it's a remarkable narrative, but it's set up by what what happens in the attitudes and response of the people. So let's begin with chapter uh, fifteen, verse twenty-two. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled without finding water, when they came to Ma'arah. Now, if you look on the map that I gave you last week, they've, they've crossed the Red Sea. The miracle that we just read about has occurred. They're headed down along the east coast of the, it's called a lot of things, Gulf of Suez, Red Sea. It's all the same body of water. So they're headed along the east coast, and you can see Marah. Marah is a Hebrew word which means bitter. So they came to Marah. They could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why it's called Marah. Verse 24. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Now that little word that is translated grumbling in verse 24 is going to be a favorite word of the rest of Exodus. That's a word you're just going to see again and again and again and again and again and again and again. How far was that? Uh, well, remembering, again, just looking at this, remembering how long it would take to move that many people, it's not that far. It's, it's about 15 miles, 20 miles or so. It's not that far as we would think of distance. Now, I am not in any way because I want to tell you, verse 24, I would have been the one leading. the. I'd have organized my own grumbling team. And I'd have said, okay, when I say grumble, we all grumble. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's a natural response. But what, now listen, this, I, want to, I want you to think about this. What we're going to see in the next chapter, after chapter after chapter, is the insistence by the Lord of faith and the persistence of the people in grumbling. And God's goal is to bring those two together so that their faith trumps their grumbling. Maybe I shouldn't use trumps. That their faith overcomes their grumbling. And how will God do that? By showing again and again and again his sufficiency. That he will do what he said he would do. Bring them out of Egypt and take them to the promised land. That's what he said he would do. They watched him with unbelievable demonstrations of his power, take them out of Egypt, part the Red Sea. So now the test is, will you trust me that I'm going to take care of you till we get to the promised land? Well, when you're thirsty and you're tired, you're probably not going to be worshiping and singing praises to the Lord and opening, well, they didn't have the Torah yet, that's about to happen, but no, you're, you're going to grumble. And the kids are going to be yelling. I mean, it's just going to be a mess. Yes, Fred. You know, we all do uh, grumble 
But we know also, uh, I mean, the application is he was faithful, as you're saying here. He was continually faithful. Absolutely. And, and maybe it's helpful if we realize that God really does love us in those times. And this is for a purpose. If, if we can just be patient mm. and know that he loves us, and he will sustain us. And he will care for us and meet our needs and so on. Yeah. Did you think, Lord, Fred, do you think the Lord understands our grumbling? Do you think he understands why we grumble? Does he want us to keep grumbling? No. <laughs> so it's, you know, how to, it's, he's moving us along so that he demonstrates again and again and again and again that he's faithful. Uh, and, and so the children of Israel are like you and me. It's just there's a lot more of them at this point. So what does Moses do? He does what a good leader always does. He cries out to the Lord. In verse 25, And the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. Now, why do you think God did it that way? That's not a hard question. I, I mean, I don't mean specifically the piece of wood, but why do you think God did it that particular way where, you know, they've been traveling, they don't have any water, and all of a sudden they're at a, a very big place of water, but the water's contaminated. You can't drink it. I think it may be so he could demonstrate again. Exactly. You are going to drink as much water as you can possibly consume because I'm going to do another miracle. I'm going to demonstrate again the sufficiency of my power to keep the promise I made to you that I'm going to take you to the promised land. And so again, the Lord demonstrates his sufficiency. Don't you think it also um, kind of supported the leadership of Moses? Oh, absolutely. I think he probably needed it at this point. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's going to be one of the things that we will see develop throughout these, in one sense, the next 40 years, because they will constantly be challenging Moses' leadership. They're either going to be grumbling, you, why did you do this, or let's find another leader, which they will try a couple times. It's just amazing, isn't it? Yeah, but the human nature of Israel is just like our human nature. So God did another miracle. Now, I want you to notice something. What follows is a very, very important principle that is established. There the Lord issued a ruling. I'm reading from the NIV here. That's how they translate that word. I don't know if you all have the word ruling. Issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. What's the ruling? Let me paraphrase it. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings discipline. That's the principle the Lord is lying, laying down for them. Now, that's something they have to learn that. But the, the way in which the text puts in verse, end of verse 25, this now becomes a ruling, a decree, um, a, a didactic lesson that they are supposed to learn and apply to their life. When you obey the Lord, he will bless you. When you disobey the Lord, he will discipline you. Does everyone talk about the fear of the Lord? Yeah. And that, that part of that fear, adoration, worship, devotion to the Lord. Solomon says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So this is, this is an important principle. How long is it going to take them to learn this? Remember, Israel means he who contends with God. So they will always be contending with God.
just like you and I are always contending with God. But we really do begin to learn this. The longer we walk with the Lord, loving obedience to the Lord does bring his blessing. Willful disobedience to the Lord brings his discipline. That was true in 1446 B.C. It's true in 2017 A.D. So it's very, very important principle that the Lord is laying down for them. Verse 21, no, not 21, excuse me, verse 27 tells us, and you can see it in their map, on the map, they then came to Elim, it's a wadi, it's a big wadi, it's an oasis, wadi is like an oasis, where they were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. It's not, it's not very far from Marah to Elim, it's very close. But Marah is where they learn a lesson, get a principle, go a little farther south, and there's an abundance. Palm trees and everything. Still there today. Still there today. All right. Um, Again, keeping your eye on the map, you'll see that the region of southern Arabia is called the wilderness of sin or the a wilderness or the desert of sin. It's a wilderness. It is that this is this is Arabia. It's Saudi Arabia today. It is one of the most barren places on earth. And that's where they are. So verse one of chapter uh, sixteen, we begin to see what the Lord is going to do as he begins to present his self uh, his worthiness, his his faithfulness to cultivate this dependence on him. And we're going to see five major ways God provides now. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, the wilderness of Sin. You can see it on the map that I gave you last week, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month. Now, I don't know if you want to go into this detail, but I gave you this chart a couple weeks ago of the calendar that the Lord established. Part of him establishing them as a new nation was a new calendar. He is saying the beginning of the calendar that you will now follow is what? It's Passover. Followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The text just tells us we're in the second month. So they're in the second month here. That's where they are. Okay? That's how God wants them to think. And the text is telling, Moses wrote this, the text is telling us they're observing it. In the desert, the whole community, <laughs> here's our word again, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, and this, this, is, this is their standard response. You'll see this again and again and again. Verse 3, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. <laughs> there we sat with, with pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Now, I, I mean, I totally understand that. But, you know, guys, just remember, a couple of days ago, the Lord gave you a lot of water. I mean, it's just, but they have to learn that. They have to learn that. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Obviously, you're going to see this in just a minute. They're going to institute the observance of the Sabbath. That's coming up. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he's heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that we should grumble, that you should grumble against us? Moses said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you the meat to eat in the evening and the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. You are not grumbling against us. Who's the us? Moses and Aaron. But against the Lord. That's an important premise. 
when you complain and grumble, we're hearing it, that the reality is you're grumbling against the Lord. So what happens? Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert. That would be toward the east. Because remember, they're right along the coast. So look toward the east is where they're looking. And there was the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. Some have suggested that this is an early manifestation of the Shekinah. Have you ever heard of that word, the Shekinah glory? The Shekinah, Shekinah is just a Hebrew word, the appearing of glory that will be in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. So, because it just says, there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the clouds. So it's matter. What is it? What are they seeing? But it says it's cloud which causes, and I don't see any reason why we couldn't conclude that, this is the Shekinah. This is a manifestation of the glory of the Lord. They see it. And then look at what's in verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you eat meat, in the morning you are to be filled with bread. Then you'll know that I am the Lord your God. So the purpose of these miracles, God providing meat in the evening, bread in the morning, is didactic. Didactic means it teaches a truth. That's what they're supposed, to, they're supposed to learn what? That Yahweh is their personal God who will take care of them. He's going to demonstrate it. Okay, verse 13. That evening, quail came. Now, that's, I'm pretty sure most of your translations have quail. There, there is a lot of discussion about the exact bird it was, but I'm not sure it matters particularly, but covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? In Hebrew, what is it is manna, manna. For they did not know what it is. Verse Next verse. Moses said, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one of you is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer. An omer is about two quarts. And it's really hard to be real precise, but about two quarts for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as, that, as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by Omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. The one who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered just as much as they needed. So God provides animals, quail, meat in the evening, and manna, supernatural bread. It's, was, they tell me it was like Panera's. <laughs> I just made that up. That's not in the Bible. I'm just trying to get your attention. <clears throat> but look at verse 19. Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. In other words, to store it. Why? Trusting in him. It's built faith. I will provide for you each day. Remember what the Lord Jesus said when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. One of the legitimate things we were to pray for is, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. It is proper. It is right. I could probably say it is expected by the Lord that we will pray for our daily needs, that the Lord will provide our daily needs. That's one of the reasons why we, I mean, I'm sure most of you do that, when you sit down to a meal, you just thank the Lord for the meal. You just thank him for providing this food. And so all it's just building this faith and building, let me use another word, building this dependence on the Lord. They need to learn dependence on him. Even though they were slaves in Egypt for 430 years, because they lived in Goshen and where they lived, there was a degree, not, not a lot, but there's a degree of autonomy to an extent. Now, they're out in the desert, and they need, they, they need to learn that utter, absolute daily dependence on him. So 
Here you see, don't store this stuff. Every day you gather just what you need. Now, as you can imagine, not every Israelite believed that. So verse 20, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning. So it was full of maggots and began to smell. God said, don't store it. Some stored it. It was worthless. So Moses was angry. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much. Two omers, remember that's about two quarts for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported it to Moses. All right, so the first major provision of God is food. Not water, that's coming up. Food. Quail at night, manna uh, for the bread. And it's going to be interesting how Jesus Christ in his public ministry will appeal to this. I should maybe say appeal. We'll refer to this. And one of them is in the context where he will say, I am the bread of life. Where Jesus is, of course, moving figuratively. He's more than just the piece of bread you eat. Bread in that he sustains and then provides eternal life. I am the bread of eternal life. So, I mean, it's just a good just before them, they kept it overnight and brought it, but hold on a second. On day six, we're, we're good. You can keep it overnight. But that's because of what's supposed to happen on the seventh day. Right. So some days you can keep it overnight, not every day. That's right. Because there's something special about the seventh day. Too many rules. Is it that another miracle, though? That on that absolutely. Day, oh, sure, absolutely. It, it is. It is. It is. You know, Glenn, you've that's a good that's a good point. You, I know you meant that somewhat humorously, but um, what God is doing, and this, of course, will lead to the giving of the law in, at Mount Sinai. God is saying, for you to not be a chaotic people, you need to be organized. You need structure, and I'm going to provide that through my law. Now, one of the things we're going to learn here as we get into this, I don't know if I should get into this now, but is as um, as we move into God, and I love how you put that, Glenn, as we move into more and more rules, why so many rules for these people? Among other things. One, they need structure. But two, everything God is going to do is going to be organized around every facet of their life. So whether it's when you wake up and do this, this is what I want you to do. When you prepare your meals, this is how I want you to do it. When you organize, why? Because every aspect of their life, they're to think about the Lord. You follow what I mean? God will organize their life completely. He will organize everything they're supposed to do. He will organize it so that as they do these things in obedience to him, they think of him. Because the Lord wants them to understand, and I hope you can see why I'm putting it this way. He's not a fair-weather friend. 24-7, that's who he is. I am your God, your Yahweh, your Elohim, your El Shaddai, your all those titles and names that focus on every aspect of who God is so that you think about him every part of your day and you give him thanks, you give him praise. And so it's just a... Glenn is absolutely right. Here's another rule, and it's another standard we have to obey. We'll see this build. Look at the second thing he does. It's in verse 23. This is the first mention of it in the book of Exodus. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest. Sabbath, Shabbat. It's almost, that's almost redundant. Because Shabbat means rest. So today it will be a rest rest day. 
because Sabbath means rest. Shabbat in Hebrew means rest. A holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever's left. Keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the Sabbath of the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you're to gather, but on the seventh, the Sabbath, there will not be any. God is preparing them for the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, I just uttered an important sentence, biblically speaking. God is preparing them for something. He will institute the Sabbath, Sabbath rest. Remember, in a way, that's redundant. It's like rest, rest, but Sabbath rest as the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. That will be the sign. Like circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic Covenant, the Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. God is preparing for, for that. Now, let's think about this for just a minute. Where did this come from? Where does this model, this pattern, this habit of living... Six days followed by a seventh day of rest of Shabbat. Where does that come from? From creation. That's the pattern that God followed. Now, not because God needed a good night's sleep. That's not, the point is not that. But God is setting a pattern for how, and, and it gets to what Glenn's word was, it gets to the pattern, the rule, the standard that God wants us to live. And it is, you work six days, and then the seventh you rest. And as you're seeing here, they're in a desert. And I mean, you know, God is going to have to supernaturally provide for everything for them. And God is saying, prepare for that seventh day. Gather enough manna and quail and stuff that you need to eat for the seventh day because you're not going to gather anything on the seventh. So rest, Shabbat, is a sign of this is the pattern God's, it's good for me physically, it's good for me spiritually because I worship him, but it also builds my faith because I'm not supposed to do anything to get the sustenance for life. I trust God for that. And so, when you get into the agricultural society, once they get into their land, because remember, ancient Israel is an agricultural society, that means they're going to have to trust the Lord that they're going to farm that day, they're going to harvest that day, they're going to have to trust the Lord, he'll take care. So the Sabbath, it's really interesting, it's just a dynamic of lots of things intersecting. The need of our body for rest. The need of the human who walks with God to worship and be devoted to him. And then another example of him building faith and trust in his people. Because you're going to have to really trust the Lord for that seventh day. He tells you to do it, and he says, I'll provide. So test me. So God is, God is beginning to institute, and you can see he's doing it incrementally, but to institute a whole pattern by which they are to live their life. So that every step of every day of their work day and then their worship restful Shabbat day is a day where they're thinking about the Lord continually. They're dependent on the Lord continually. See what he's doing? He's building this dependence on them, on him, into their life. And that becomes that becomes extremely important to the Jew. And today, for the Orthodox Jew, it is the most important characteristic of their life. And I've been to Israel many, many times in my life. The hardest thing for somebody who doesn't observe the Sabbath, like me, is to be in Israel on the Sabbath. Because everything shuts down. It really does. Everything shuts down. Particularly in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, nothing shuts down. Everything, 
because Tel Aviv is a very secular city. It doesn't have much to do with ancient Israel. But in, in Jerusalem, we're always in Jerusalem on the Sabbath day and you know, the trips we take. And you go to the elevators. Um, they always tell you, don't take the Shabbat elevator. They're usually, most hotels are pretty big because the Shabbat elevator automatically stops on every floor. So you don't have to lift up your finger and press a button. Seriously. So you just, you get into the elevator, it automatically opens, automatically closes, you just stand there. But particularly, the, I mean, the one hotel we stay in has 40 floors to it. So if you're, say, on the 34th floor, that's where your room is, and you use your Shabbat elevator, it's going to take you 20 minutes to get there. So just use the non-Shabbat elevator. Big signs uh, to distinguish. That's just one little example. But in Jerusalem, again, that's where the Orthodox Jews are, are particularly densely populating that city, is where you see this very rigid observance of the Sabbath. Tel Aviv, Haifa, no. They're pretty secular cities. But I don't know I'm telling you all that, but it still is a very, very important part of the Jewish person's life in even 2017. All right, verse 27. As we've seen before, nevertheless, some people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found them. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh. No one's to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. Did you notice? Did you notice how the Lord put this? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Given you the Sabbath. This is to be understood and interpreted as a blessing from God. I want you to rest. I want you to have the rest of dependence on me, the rest of physical and spiritual refreshment focused on me. Medical people tell me the strategic importance of taking one day where you radically change your routine. It's good for you emotionally, physically, Psychologically, they wouldn't put it this way, but I would add spiritually. Did I ever tell you the story of what the Jacobins did during the French Revolution? The French Revolution, do you know, and you know what that is? 1789, it started with the Bastille, July 14th. And by 1793, an extreme group of radicals called the Jacobins have control of the revolution. And they abolish Christianity, they abolish all aspects of Christianity, they institute the worship of reason, and they change the work week from a seven-day work week to a ten-day work week. They change all the names of the days, all the names of the months, forcing people to work ten straight days before they have a day off. What do you think happened to productivity? I mean, just it plummeted. I mean, everything, everything was just so counterproductive to everything they wanted to achieve. So after about a year, a little over a year, they decided to go back to the seventh day. Now, you can argue a lot of things, but God made a standard for the good of his image bearers. And whether you're a believer or not, to work six days and rest the seventh day is healthy in every single facet of who we are as a human being. Where does that come from? From our creator. And we can choose not to follow it, we can choose to disobey it, or we can choose to, you know, this is a good gift from a good God. That's not how everybody responds. But it's so neat how the Lord is putting this. Shabbat will be a major part of Jewish worship. It is. It becomes a legalistic, unfortunately, a legalistic standard by the time of Jesus. By the way, did you ever notice in the Gospels how many times Jesus does miracles intentionally on the Sabbath? Because he's challenging the Pharisaic legalistic view of the Sabbath. It's just so much fun to see how the Lord does that. Fred? How, how do pastors deal with that today? I mean, we might think we know, but how do you see it? Some pastors don't do very well with it at all. 
But most boards, a good board of a good church, always has a protective function for their pastor. What I mean by that is they must insist that their pastor take a Shabbat day. It can't be Sunday, because that is the day in which they do their their, their ministry and their work. It's a difficult day. I mean, I'm very busy on Sundays. I usually teach and preach two, three, four times, depending where I am. I am absolutely exhausted. By 10 o'clock Sunday, I'm absolutely worn out. So, you know, I, I have to do something. But a pastor, a good board, who has a good protective function over their pastoral staff, must insist that their pastor take a day. Choose it. Many pastors take Fridays. But I, for me, uh, 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 what, that's what my, the guys on, on our church do. They take Monday as their day. It's just a good day to get away, uh, not necessarily travel out of town, but to get away from the office. I used to tell, I don't want to see, if I see you in the office, now we don't have a building yet. We'll have a building in four weeks. But, um, you know, I don't want to see you in this building. That's what I'm going to tell Matt. If I see you in our building on Monday, you're fired. <laughs> I don't have any authority, so I can't yeah, tell him that. I have absolute, because I'm hired by the church board too. But, huh? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think it, but it, it doesn't matter. It, but most, Monday is a good day. It's a good day. It really is. Because you, you, you're usually tired and pretty worn out from a busy Sunday to be able to take. But that is really important. And a pastoral leader who doesn't do that is, I think, he's disobeying the Lord. Not to make it a legalistic standard, but that's not good. He'll burn out. And that's why the board has to have that protective function. Make sure that he's doing that. Or if she's if it's a woman, she's on staff. They need, you, they need to do that. You absolutely must insist they do it. And that's why some CEOs of companies and just common ordinary work people, if you're working seven full days a week, that's going to affect your health. There is no question about it. And people who don't give a hoot about anything in the Bible will tell you that. Uh, my question, uh, you know, I, I worked for quite a few years in a factory before I became a realtor, but they would make the weekends mandatory, and we had to work Saturdays mm. and sometimes Sundays. And, uh, of course, there was time and a half and double time. I don't know how you turn that down and, you know, stay home if you've got a family. Uh, I, I, I did turn it down. I took everything all the time it's really hard, Woody, uh, in those kind of situations, particularly when you're raising a family and financial needs are, are pretty acute. God does not mandate it, Woody. I mean, the Sabbath is no longer an obligatory thing for us to do. I mean, you don't see that repeated. But I want to ask, I want to point this out. I would encourage you sometime to do, and I know you don't usually take the time to do that kind of study, but to do sometime, do a study of the word rest in the Bible. And particularly zero in on the book of Hebrews. Because chapter 10 and following in the book of Hebrews really stresses the word rest. And the rest that is discussed in the New Testament and in the book of Hebrews particularly is the, the rest of the new covenant. You remember Jesus, I think it's in Matthew 11, Jesus says, come unto me, all of you who are, are, are heavy laden and burdened. You, the yoke, my yoke's easy. Remember, what does he say? And I will give you rest. What does that mean? Because he's using it after a long discussion in chapter 11 and so on, about Pharisaic legalism and all the burdens they're placing on the people, and he contrasts who he is with what they're offering. They offer Sabbath rest, which is a legalistic standard. He's offering them what? New covenant rest. The rest from the struggle with sin. The rest from the burden of legalism. And so rest, rest is a very powerful word in the Scriptures. And again, Shabbat, the Hebrew word, it's rest. That's what it means. But it, it has so much deeper meaning. And that's what's going to just slowly be developed throughout the scriptures. 
the very significant and very powerful meaning of the word rest. It's physical rest, there's emotional and psychological rest, but there's spiritual rest. Independence on the Lord who gives us the rest from the struggle with sin. So it's symbolic, pointing toward that. So the Lord is instituting it here. It's, it's in Genesis, but now the Lord is instituting it with his covenant community. The first introduction of it in the book of Exodus. Uh, let's look at verse 31. <clears throat> the people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander, that's an herb, and tasted like wafers made with honey. Pretty good taste. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Now, this is just repeating what we read earlier. Look at verse 33. Take a jar and put an omer of, omer's two quarts of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. Where will that cup end up? Yes, in the tabernacle. Where in the tabernacle? In the Ark of the Covenant. Eventually, the Ark of the Covenant will contain three items. The Ten Commandments, the, Aaron, the, the staff that budded, Aaron's staff, and then a cup of manna. So that will be, as far as we know, that will be in the Ark of the Covenant until uh, Solomon's temple is destroyed. So it's just, what is this? This is a memorial. It's a memorial. Is God into memorials? Is God into object lessons, memorials? Yeah. I mean, he does it all. What's the most significant memorial for you to observe? The Lord's table. As you drink, as you eat, do this in remembrance of me. It's a memorial. It's to cause us to think about Jesus each time we partake of communion. And so I, I don't make a big deal out of it, but it's really important. What Moses is doing is he's instituting this very, very important memorial. memorial. God has provided for you. Every day he's provided bread. And ultimately, as you know, it's going to be 40. Because verse 35 tells us, the Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. The manna reached the border of Canaan. So for 40 years. All right? There are three provisions so far that we've seen. One is the provision of quail and the, the manna. Second is the institution of the Sabbath. And third is this memorial, where they are to remember what the Lord has done. Now, tomorrow, uh, I'm sorry, um, next Wednesday, I want to get into chapter 17, where the Lord provides water for them, but in a very supernatural way. And when, when we do this, I want to also look at Numbers 20. So if you really have a lot of extra time this week, read Exodus 17, at least the first seven verses, and then go read Numbers 20. In both cases, you have water coming from the rock, but they're very different. Why are they different, and why does God judge Moses in Numbers 20? Because he says to him, because you have disobeyed me, Moses, you will not go into the promised land. I want to look at Numbers 20. So I'm going to, we're going to read the first seven verses of 17. Then we're going to go over to Numbers 20 next week. And I want to, I want to contrast those two. Because in, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll do that next week. So if you really, really have a lot of time, read Numbers 20. They're two different accounts with very different results. Why the difference? So that's we'll, kind of a neat thing to study. All right. So let me pray here. Thanks for coming today. I hope it was a blessing. Lord, we studied the Word of God uh, together this morning. We thank you for your faithfulness to the children of Israel. And Lord, um, it's a miracle. It's an absolute, astonishing, astounding, supernatural miracle to bring this many people out of Egypt as they head toward the Promised Land. But as you wanted them to build their faith and trust in you and learn dependence on you, 
Lord, that's still our assignment today. You want to grow our faith and grow our trust in you. Lord, each man here, including myself, grow their faith. Increase their faith and dependence on you. Because as the Bible says, without you, we can do nothing. But as Paul says in another passage, with Christ, I can do all things. So our life is to be a life of dependence, a life of submission, a life of loving obedience to you. So help to teach us that, Lord. Help us to learn those lessons. Help us not to be grumblers. It's easy to do that, and I'm so thankful you're patient and you understand that, but you want us to grow out of the grumbling stage and into the stage of dependence and trusting and having faith in you daily for every moment of our lives. That's our goal. That's the goal you have for us. So we're trusting that each day you'll grow our faith just a little bit more. Be with these men as they go their separate ways. Help them in their work and their responsibilities with family, grandchildren, others that they come in contact with. And all they do and all they say, Lord, would you help them to represent you well in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See you next uh, week.